Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, that's where we are as we've been going through um, our study in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 6, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek. And then he stops, actually, I think it's in chapter 5, mentions Melchizedek. And then he takes a break and he says, I can't really go into, I'd like to go into details, but you guys aren't ready for it. Um, basically, because uh, they had kind of like, I don't know, they, they maybe walked away or not walked away, but they weren't into the word as much as they should have been. They were babes in Christ. We talked about that last week. And again, if you missed the live stream audio last week, you probably just saw my mouth moving, um, but you can go to the website and the, the audio of it is recorded there as well. So anyways, we get to chapter seven and now it's like the writer, it's like, he can't wait. It's like, you know, I, I just gotta, I gotta talk about Melchizedek and it's so important. And so he does talk about Mel Melchizedek here in chapter seven. So one of the first things we're going to do as we dig through this chapter is talk about who was Melchizedek. That's verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 10, we're going to see why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then in verses 11 through 19, that why the need for a new priesthood. And finally, verses 20 to 28, the greatness of the new high priest. So as we get into that, the first thing we're going to look at is who Melchizedek is. And, you know, he's sort of an enigma. Um, there's not that much about Melchizedek. There's actually only four verses in the Old Testament that mention Melchizedek. Three of them are in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And that is at a time where Abraham was alive. And uh, Abraham, if you read that passage, we won't look at it this morning, but if you read that passage, Abraham has returned from the slaughter of the kings. What is that referring to? Well, there was a guy by the name of Cheddar Laramar or something like that. Anyways, uh, we'll call him Cheddar for short. Um, Cheddar was this king, and uh, he was kind of like the, the big, big dog there at the time. And these other kingdoms, these city-states, they were basically having to pay tribute to him and they did that for about 12 years the 13th year they said that's enough and so five of these city-states they rebelled against him and they kind of joined a confederacy well cheddar um, got uh, four him and him three other uh, kings and they went to war against these other guys, the, these five kings, and they took them captive. And one of the kings was the king of Sodom. And uh, if you recall, Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, uh, lived in Sodom. It's kind of an interesting story, uh, not a very good progression, but he started in the land kind of looking at Sodom, and it was a very pleasant, fruitful land, apparently. And then he got out just outside of Sodom. And then finally, at the end of, this, of Lot's story, he's inside Sodom. So anyways, he gets taken captive. They're all, they're all, they're all basically uh, taken captive. Now, I don't think Abraham would have even gotten involved in this situation except for his nephew Lot was taken captive. And so he takes 318 of his trained servants and he goes uh, against these four armies uh, of these different kings and kingdoms. And there's a miraculous victory. And with that, a miraculous rescue. 
and he rescues all the people, and, and they basically completely wipe out these other kings. Well, during that time, in that passage, then Melchizedek, this is where we're introduced to him, he comes out and he brings bread and wine and he blesses Abraham, and then it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils. Uh, a, a tenth would be, a, a, or a tithe, I should say, is a tenth of, of what he had received, or what he had captured. Um, so three verses in Genesis, and that's all you hear about Melchizedek. And then about a thousand years later, literally about a thousand years later, actually a little bit more, David in the book of Psalms, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions Melchizedek. It's in Psalm 110, verse 4. So the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This psalm is a messianic psalm. It's prophesying the coming of the Messiah. So, that's all you hear about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. About a thousand years after that, the writer of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek. He's a mysterious person. And so there's, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of different opinions. Actually, I think there's two major opinions about Melchizedek. One is that he's just this mysterious person who, I mean, a historical man. He lived, he's mentioned in scriptures, and he's a prefigures or he's a type of Christ Jesus. And he's there for a reason. He's mentioned for a reason. Other people think that this is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus. Uh, 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 well, a theophany, uh, let me give you a, a definition of a theophany. It's a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament period, often, but not always, in human form. And uh, one of the ways when he appeared, and it wasn't in human form, was remember when Moses was, it was, came to the burning bush, and that was God's presence. That was a physical manifestation of God's presence in the, in the burning bush. But then there was another time when Abraham and Sarah, there was three men, and two of them are angels, and one of them is the Son of God. And they come and uh, prophesy, or they tell uh, Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son. And uh, that was another one of those theophanies. Well, for the sake of our study this morning, um, I'm going to refer to it as a Christophany because it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what some people think. Other people think it's just a historical figure um, that's there. He's just prefiguring and he's a picture, an illustration of Christ. No matter what you personally believe this morning, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong, and it's not uh, an is issue. The writer of Hebrews here is using him to illustrate Christ's priesthood. Excuse me. So we'll be looking at that. So beginning with verse seven, I mean, <laughs> chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham also gave a tenth of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also uh, Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. So what do we learn about him? First of all, his title is significant. It says as he's first being translated, king of righteousness, Melchizedek. The word Melchi, the first part of his name means my king or king, and Zedek, or Zedek, it means right. And so it's translated king of righteousness or the king is righteous. 
So that's his first, the translation of his name. The second is also King of Salem, and uh, meaning King of Peace. Now Salem is, it, that's what it literally means is peace. It might sound familiar to you if you were to go to Israel and uh, you know you, you, you greet a, a Jewish person, they'd probably say shalom to you. Shalom is the same as peace. And if you were a Muslim, you might say salam aleikum. Again, that's also peace, and actually it means peace be upon you. In fact, if you want to kind of like uh, disarm a Muslim person, you're, maybe you want to you know, break the ice and witness to them or whatever, or just share the love of Christ with them, you might try that. You might go up to them and say, salam alaikum, and they will almost, almost invariably reply, wa alaikum salam. And that means, and unto you, peace. And I've done it, and it's, they, they do it. And it's an interesting thing. I remember at one time in a store saying that to a, a Muslim woman, and she said, oh, you speak Arabic. And I said, no, that's all I know. But, you know, anyways, I was starting to, it was a nice way to kind of talk to her and, and uh, share the love of Christ. And um, I've seen her a few times around town, and I've tried several times. But uh, anyways, so that's just a thing if you ever want to uh, witness to Muslims it's a good way to kind of break the ice with them well what's significant about these titles is the order of them the order is important notice that it says first he's first translated righteousness and then peace and you know that speaks to a spiritual truth that without righteousness you can have no peace now, I'm not talking about peace like in the world around us, although I think there's probably a truth to that as well, but I'm talking about peace in your heart. You'll never have peace in your heart until you have righteousness. The problem is, the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. In fact, the Bible says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So there's a problem. I need peace. But I also need righteousness to, to have peace, and I can't get peace. Or I mean, I can't get righteousness on my own. Well, there is a solution. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You and I as believers, we've been given Christ's righteousness. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not have that inner peace any other way. It's only found in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and obtaining his righteousness. So the next thing that we find out, his, you know, his name, the translations of his name, next thing is his office. Notice that he's not just some priest of some Canaanite religion. He's the priest of the Most High God, and he was a king of a city. Now, some people think that's Jerusalem. Uh, some of you say, no, it's just a city named Salem. I, you know, I don't know. But he was a king of a city, and he was a priest. And in the Bible, typically, 
kings and priests, those two roles, those two offices weren't supposed to be combined. It usually didn't turn out too good. There's a couple examples in the Bible. King Uzziah, he wanted to go into the temple, into the holy place, and uh, the priests are like, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And he, he just went in there in his pride, and uh, he ended up getting leprosy. Didn't turn out too good for him. Uh, king Saul was another person, a king, and he wanted to offer a sacrifice. He's waiting for Elijah to come, and he didn't come, or Samuel, excuse me, to come, and Samuel didn't show up in time. So he went and he offered a sacrifice. And as a result, God rejected him from being king over Israel. So mixing those two offices, priests and kings, or I'm not even saying today's day, uh, you know, uh, ministry or pastors and, and politics, not always works out too good. Um, I read this article. It was about Billy Graham. It was in Christianity Today, and the article was titled, What I Would Have Done Differently. And it was an interview of, of Billy Graham while he was still alive. And if you know Billy Graham, he was a friend of presidents. I mean, he would, you'd always see him. He'd go to the White House, and he was always invited to these presidential things. And Richard Nixon was actually one of his close friends, even before he became a president. And uh, at some point in this article goes into kind of detail about it, he felt like he was being kind of used for his position in this relationship with, with Nixon, and he kind of regretted it. But he said this, and I thought it was kind of interesting with the days that we're living in right now, regarding his role as, as an evangelist and a pastor and his role and his involvement with politics in, in the Beltway in, in Washington, D.C. He said this, I came close to identifying the American way of life with the kingdom of God. Graham told Christianity Today more than 10 years after Nixon resigned. Then I realized that God had called me to a higher kingdom than America. I have tried to be faithful to my calling as a minister of the gospel. So he reckoned, you know, he's maybe getting involved with politics and finally, you know what? God's called me to preach the gospel. I'll be honest with you, why I bring that up is because that's a struggle that I've had. I mean, this last election, you know, I was really getting, you know, worked up and, you know, I'm not thrilled with the way things turned out. But I really felt like the Lord is telling me, you know what, just stick to what I've called you to do. I've called you to preach the gospel. I've called you to teach people about my love and, and about a relationship with them. Just stick to that. That's your calling. Other people, Christians, and they, they're, you know, if they get involved in politics, that's great, but that's not my calling. And so that was a message, I think, for me personally. Well, Jesus Christ, he's our great high priest, and he's also the king of kings. But it was interesting because, you know, when he was before Pilate, Pilate said, uh, so you are a king. And, and, and Jesus said to him, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, if it was of, of this world, my followers would have came and they would have, they would have released, you know, they would have fought and released me. And he said, but my kingdom's not of this world. And so anyways, priesthood and kingdoms, excuse me, priesthood and politics is not necessarily a good thing. But Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and he's a king of kings. Another thing that's kind of significant that we learn about him is his lack of genealogy. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So, like I mentioned earlier, some people believe that this, he was a pre-incarnate, a Christophany, I would call him, appearance of Christ Jesus. 
Others think he was simply a man who happened to be both priest and king of a city, Salem, in the days of Abraham. Well, what are some of the arguments for the fact that he was simply a man, but used as an illustration of Christ? And here's some of the arguments. If he is simply a man, he would have had to have had a genealogy, he would have had to have a mom and dad, right? Um, they're just not recorded in scriptures, and neither is his birth or his death. You know, it's interesting because if you go into the book of Genesis and you read that, you, you can't practically turn a page without reading about a genealogy. They're all, everywhere you turn in the book of Genesis, there's genealogies. We have genealogies of Adam, of Cain, of Seth, of Abraham, all these different people, you know, so-and-so begat blank. This person begat blank, you know, and, and it goes on and on and on. Well, Melchizedek, there is no genealogy in the book of Genesis for him. As far as the scriptures is concerned, he has no beginning and he has no end like Christ Jesus. The other thing is Hebrews 5 verse 1, we studied that a couple weeks ago, said that the prerequisite for priesthood was that it had to be a human. And if, this is the argument, one of the arguments, if this Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus, he wasn't a human yet, so he couldn't be a priest. That's one of the arguments. Um, the other argument is that the, in the Old Testament, these theophanies, and there's a lot of them in there, they came and disappeared once the message or the, the message was delivered or a purpose was accomplished. They never stuck around and held permanent office, and yet Melchizedek held permanent offices of priest and king. And then verse 3 says, uh, does not say that he was the son of God, but he was made like the son of God as a prefigure or a type of Christ. So that's some of the arguments that people use for um, why it's just a man that, you know, the Bible used him, the Holy Spirit used him as a illustration of Christ our high priest. There are some arguments for this being a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. They say if Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, then that would say that Christ follows Milk after Melchizedek, but Christ is the one and only high priest. That's one of the arguments. Um, another one is that Abraham, in effect, bowed down to Melchizedek and paid tithes to him. And then also, based on Psalm 110, it says that he remains a priest continually. There's some other arguments for, for and against. The point is, no matter what you believe, the purpose for mentioning Melchizedek here in this chapter this morning is not to prove who Melchizedek is, but it's to show that the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood of Aaron and you know his descendants um, because of the superiority of the Mel uh, Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, because it's greater than that of Levi. So... Getting to verse 4, why is Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Let's look at that. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father Abraham, oh, excuse me, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Melchizedek was so great, even the great patriarch Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. You think about it. Abraham is, uh, you know, of course, the Jewish people look to Abraham as, as uh, you know, their father, you know, their patriarch. But so do the Muslims. They, they believe the same thing uh, through Ishmael, his son. So it's kind of interesting. So the great, even the great patriarch Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And because the Levitical priesthood descended from Abraham, and, you know, the, 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 the Jewish people were to pay tithes to the Levites, to the, to the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. But what the writer is saying is that, you know, um, they were descended from Abraham. So they were kind of like in his loins. I mean, they were, you know, they were down the road, obviously, but they were part of Abraham when, when Abraham paid tithes. So here he says, here more to men, verse eight, here more to men. And he's speaking of the Levitical priesthood receives tithes. But there, now he's speaking of Melchizedek, receives them of whom it is written, uh, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Again, in scriptures, his death is not recorded. And in that sense, he still lives. Of course, unless you believe that that's a, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ, then um, that would make sense that he still lives. So the bottom line, Melchizedek was not of the genealogy of Levi, and yet he received tithes from Abraham, their, um, their ancestor. You know, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people believe, or Christians believe anyways, that because we're under the new covenant, that tithing was an aspect of the old covenant, therefore they're free not to tithe. But what's interesting here is this passage of Scripture. Here, tithing precedes the covenant of Moses. In fact, you read Jacob also tithed to the Lord before the covenant of Moses. Um, so what is the purpose for tithing? Well, first and foremost, now tithing, it just means a tenth. Uh, first and foremost, it's worship. What it is is it's acknowledging that Everything that you have comes from the Lord and belongs to the Lord, and it's recognizing his lordship. As a priest, because the Bible says in 2 Peter, 1 Peter, that we are a royal priesthood. As priests, we're bringing a gift to him in worship. So first and foremost, tithing is a form of worship for the believer. Secondly, it's beneficial for you and I personally. Because as you tithe, as you give, it loosens your grip on materialism, on possessions. And it develops in us a heart of giving. So it's a good thing in that sense. And lastly, it's practical. It supports the ministry of the local church. I mean, you know, we have a building, we have, you know, utilities, all these different things. And the, the tithes go to pay for that. So it's a practical thing. But first and foremost... It's not for that. First and foremost, it's a form of worshiping the Lord. Notice he says there in verse 7, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. 
What he is saying is the great patriarch Abraham, who would be considered great to the Jewish people, he was blessed by the greater Melchizedek. Abraham, why was Abraham great? Well, because he received the promises of God. That, that, that the Lord would bless the world, the nations of the world through him. So he was great in the sense of God's promises to him. But here, Melchizedek, who's greater, blessed him. Melchizedek is greater because he blessed Abraham. I was thinking about that, that, that verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the better. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, the disciples, they were always struggling about who was greater. And in Luke 22, verse 24, it says this. Now, there was also a dispute among them, speaking of the disciples, as to which of them should be considered greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I, and just as Jesus speaking, am among you as the one who serves. Here the greater, Jesus Christ, he was ministering to his serving, his disciples. In Matthew 23, 11, Jesus said, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And so just, just a rhetorical question. Do you consider yourself greater? You know, do you consider yourself more spiritual than somebody else? Or maybe more mature or more important? Well, if you do, then serve and bless those who you consider less than you. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book uh, Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerichs, or we had the, the conference here um, uh, years ago, and I've used it when I do premarital counseling for newlyweds or for young couples that want to get married, engaged couples. I guess that's the best way to describe them. Um, and one of the things that I remember watching that those videos, and one of the things that always stuck out to me was he said this, says, I often, challenge, I often challenge couples by saying the mature one goes first. It's much easier to sit back and say, well, Emerson, I would be more loving if my wife was more respectful. Or why should I show my husband respect when he is treating me in an unloving way? Of course, it is easier to be obedient to God in our marriage when our husband or wife is also being obedient. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. So who goes first? My answer, the mature one. In other words, the greater one. So just something that jumped out at me. Um, the greater always blesses, or the lesser is always blessed by the greater. So again, if you think you're greater, then bless those that are under you, that are less than you. So why the need for a new priesthood? Look at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there uh, that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? 
For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is a change of the law. For he whom of these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. What he's saying is if perfection could be achieved through the Levitical priesthood and by extension the law, why the need for a new priesthood? As we get in and look at that, I, I want to just bring one thing out. First and foremost, Psalm 19, verse 7, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the, Lord, with the law. The, the Old Testament law is not flawed, but the problem is that observing it, just observing it, you know, following the law, it cannot make you perfect. It's not because there's a problem with the law. It's a problem because there's a problem with you. You can't keep the law because we're sinners. We have a sin nature. We cannot possibly keep the law. And so because we violate the law, the Bible says the law condemns us. And again, if you think back to the context of this, this whole letter, these Hebrew believers were tempted to go back into Judaism. But what he's trying to get across over and over to them is if you try to go back to the Levitical system of sacrifices and the law, you're going to fail because you'll never become righteous through the law because of you, because you're a sinner. Well, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, Galatians 3.24 says it very well. It's a tutor to bring us to Christ. That's what the law was, it was to point out our need for a Savior, the fact that we recognize there's no way I can keep the law. It was to, to show us our need for a Savior. It doesn't mean that we can live lawless lives as Christians. It doesn't mean like, well, okay, I can just disregard the law and live any way I want. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, I do not think you can be a Christian without being a disciple. The idea that I can come to the Lord and by, by grace have all my sins forgiven and have my name written in heaven and have the carpenter go to, a work, go to work on a mansion in my father's house and at the same time raise hell on my way to heaven is impossible and unscriptural. It cannot be found in the Bible. He later on said this, We are never saved by our good works, but we are not saved apart from good works. Out of our saving faith in Jesus Christ, there springs immediately goodness and righteousness. Spring is not brought by flowers, but you cannot have spring without flowers. It isn't my righteousness that saves, but the salvation I received brings righteousness. So we're free from the law, but we're not, uh, we're, but we're not free to just go ahead and sin. In fact, we're free not to sin. And then... We are given the Holy Spirit to enable you and I, to enable us to do the will of God as we yield to him. We've been given that ability. Well, since the Levitical priests receive their authority by the law of Moses, what the writer is saying here is there's a new priesthood. There's got to be a change in the law. You know, think about it. We've got a president right now in the White House. And if this president just like willy-nilly says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer the president, I'm the king of the United States. He couldn't do that. Or she couldn't do that. He couldn't do that, excuse me. Uh, he couldn't do that um, because why? It would be against the law, it'd be against the Constitution. The Constitution would have to be changed. 
The law stated that only the descendants of Aaron could be the high priests. The law never mentioned a priesthood descending from the tribe of Levi or Judah, excuse me. But look at verse 15. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the Levitical priests or the Aaronic priesthood, they were appointed by the fleshly commandment. It was the law that stipulated the priests, and they were appointed according to the bloodline of Levi. That, that was the law. Um, but here, Christ Jesus was appointed a priest um, by the commandment of the Father, according to the power of his endless life. The old commandment, speaking of the old, the old covenant, was weak and unprofitable because it was based on men. We can't keep the, the covenant. The new commandment is powerful and profitable because it's not based on you and I. It's based on Christ Jesus and what he did. So why the need for a new priesthood? Verse 19 sums it up. The law made nothing perfect. Man, I tell you, I, I wish we would just remember that and remember that and remember it. If you get, start getting caught up into legalism, remember this verse. The law makes nothing perfect. Just memorize it. Uh, it's so important. In fact, Paul was speaking to the church, uh, the Christians in Galatia, the Galatian believers. In chapter 3, verse 3 of the book of Galatians, letter of Galatians, he says to them, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What he's basically saying is if you think you are, man, you're fooling yourself. So that's why a new priesthood was needed, because the law could make nothing perfect. Now we're going to look at the greatness of our high priest. Again, remember, this is not about Melchizedek, but Christ Jesus, who Melchizedek's life prefigures and points to. Verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they uh, have become priests without an oath, he's speaking of the Levitical priesthood, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Levitical priests, they were appointed by birth, not by an oath from God, but Jesus Christ was appointed by God's oath. And he quotes that Psalm 110, where the Lord has sworn and will not relent. I love that. The Lord will not relent. Have you ever become used to, uh, you know, maybe you've got a, a mail person or a delivery. We, I'll, I'll give you an example. We've got a great mail carrier. This is a lady that's been coming to our house for 
for quite a while. And she's really, I don't know, we just appreciate her. When she's not there, we get these other guys. And sometimes I put a, ma a thing on my mailbox. They don't even look up. They just look and see if they've got mail to deliver. And if they don't, they, I've watched them just walk by. And I'm like, you missed my you missed my mail. And I, one time I chased the guy down the street. What are you doing, man? You forgot my mail and stuff. And, and it would always happen. But when she's there, it's like she just knows and she looks and stuff. And I appreciate that. Have you ever had like a delivery driver or maybe somebody in an office that you've gotten to work with, maybe a government official or something, You've you kind of developed a relationship with them, and you know them. They know you, and you know the things just move smoothly. And then one day you show up, and it's a different person. What happened to so and so? Well, they got fired, or oh, they quit, or they died, or something like that, or they got transferred, or something like that. And it's like okay, and then you find out that this new person is like he doesn't know anything about you, and they do whatever they want. You know, they're like yeah, they, they may have done it a different way, but there's a there's a new sheriff in town. You know, and they do things different. Can you imagine if somewhere down the road Jesus Christ got transferred or something like that? It's like there's a new there's a new priest in town. You know, and he does things differently. Praise God that he's a priest forever, that God will not relent. He's always there. The priesthood of Christ Jesus will never change. It says there, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. That word surety, it, what it's referring to is someone who gives a pledge. And you could think of it in the sense of a cosigner. Have you ever, ever had to, been asked to co-sign on a loan? So if you, you know, you're trying to get a loan and you've got no credit or bad credit, there's a place that you can go to. No, I'm just kidding. If you've got no credit or I always think of those commercials. If you've got no credit or bad credit, a lot of times you can't get a loan unless you have somebody to co-sign. Somebody who has resources. They've got good credit. They've got resources. That way, if you fail your end of the deal, the cosigner steps in. They're obligated, and they're, they obviously are qualified, and they're there to fill in on, on, to meet the requirements on your behalf. Well, under the old covenant, it failed. Again, the covenant didn't fail. We failed. Man failed. We were unable to keep our end of the deal. Under the new covenant, Christ Jesus is the cosigner for us because we can't meet. He fulfills the requirements on our behalf. And then because Christ Jesus lives forever, his priesthood is unchangeable. I love that. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. Now, does that, does that mean to the farthest extreme? There's no one beyond Christ Jesus saving. The answer is absolutely true. But the context here is referring to time. He's able to save wholly, entirely, always, forever. You see, he is officiating as our high priest in heaven always. And I don't know, sometimes we have this, 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 this idea that, you know, God's angry with us. We sin and the Father is angry with us and Jesus is there at his right hand saying, oh, but, but Father, don't, don't, don't wipe him out. Look, look, at my, look at my scars and stuff. Don't, you know, and he's almost like, a, like he's a referee or trying to get him in between, pleading our case before an angry Father. You know, God the Father loves you. He's the one that sent Christ Jesus to die for our sins. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So we don't have an angry father in heaven. The point is, he's not being crucified each time you and I sin. His one sacrifice and his continual prevent. Pre his continual presence before the throne or on the throne, it's sufficient. It's, all, it's just that it takes care of it. Verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as, though high, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Such a high priest, Jesus Christ, was fitting for us. He's holy. That speaks to his relationship to the Father. He's holy. He's harmless. He's, in other words, he's free from malice craftiness and cleverness you know he's not some slick lawyer that knows all the loopholes how to get you into heaven you know hey i got the you know they do these unethical things but you know at least at least i'm you know you're you're, you're going to make it into heaven he's not like some slick unethical lawyer he's harmless free from malice craftiness and cleverness he's undefiled he's free from moral impurity there's so much that defiles now in our world around us, but he is undefiled and he's separate from sinners. Now, the Bible says he was made like unto us. He, grew, he was born and lived as a man, but he's not like us in the sense that he's without sin. He was without sin. The other thing is the Aaronic priests, you know, the Levitical priests, the descendants of Aaron, they were always working, always sacrificing. There was always things to do. If you, if you read about the, the tabernacle or, or the temple, there's no chairs. There's no place for the priests. There's like there's no break room for them. You know, there's no coffee machine or water cooler. They're just, they're working. They're always sacrificing, especially on the Day of Atonement. The, 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 the millions of people that would come into Jerusalem and all the blood, all the sacrifices over and over and over again. It was work. Why? Because sin, the wages of sin is death. And it was a constant reminder of all the blood, all the shed blood that would be needed because of sin, all the sacrificing. So these priests, the Levitical priests, they were always working. They were always, you know, changing the showbread, making sure the candlesticks were lit, you know, sacrificing the animals and then washing and, and everything. And, you know, it, it was work for them to do. But in Hebrews, we'll get to it in chapter 10, not today, obviously, but in verse 12 of Hebrews 10, it says, But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is there right now. The work is done. He sacrificed once and for all. He's not re-being crucified over and over again. You know, and we didn't go into too much detail, but after the rescue of, of Lot there in the book of Genesis, the king of Sodom, and you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, is a wicked city. The king of Sodom came to Abraham and said, you know, I want to give you a reward for what you did. 
And Abraham said, man, you can, you can pay the guys, my servants, that, you know, you can pay them their wages for helping out, but I don't want anything from you. I don't want it being said that the king of Sodom blessed me or rewarded me. And it was at that very next moment, according to the scriptures, is that the next thing that we read, Melchizedek comes to Abraham, shows up to bless and encourage Abraham. And then the very next chapter in Genesis, God appears to Abraham and says, I am your shield and your great reward. Melchizedek showed up to minister to Abraham at the exact time that he needed it. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you know that Christ Jesus died for your sins. We all know that. We also know that he rose from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus. We'll be celebrating that at Easter. And, and you know, that, those are the foundations of the Christian faith. You can't have Christianity without the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive right now in heaven. He is our high priest. He is alive forevermore. He's there to encourage you and I, to bless you and I, to intercede. And what I mean by interceding, he's representing us. In fact, the Bible says we're seated with him in heavenly places. And so how do we apply this chapter? This chapter basically talking about the Melchizedek priesthood, the fact that priest, Melchizedek was a priest forever. And of course, it's, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Jesus Christ. He is a priest forever. He is alive forevermore. And so it's just an encouragement for you and I in our relationship with the Lord. You know, sometimes we think we're, we're lonely, right? It's like, I don't have any friends and I'm just, I'm kind of forgotten and stuff. You're never alone. Christ Jesus, your high priest, he knows you. He's interceding for you. He'll come to you and he'll encourage you. He loves you. In fact, he knows you better than you even know yourself. And so, you know, uh, his eternal, the fact that he's eternally alive right now, he is ministering as our great high priest. Um, you know, it's not a theory. It's not a, well, it's just not part of my faith. I just believe that he's alive. No, it's a reality. And I just encourage you, I encourage myself and those that are on the, on the live stream, man, come before him because that's where he's there to minister as a high priest for you and I on our behalf in heaven. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.